Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Massachusetts pediatrician Dr. Mark Vonnegut has seen a thing or two in the four decades he spent practicing medicine. In that time, Dr. Vonnegut says he's watched American healthcare change in ways he couldn't have imagined. More emphasis on money, he says, and less on care. The result, problems, including the rising numbers of community hospitals and rural physicians struggling to stay in business, and other barriers that are the result of a corporatized health care, everything from inaccessible mental health services to the skyrocketing costs of insurance and drugs. Add to that the COVID-19 pandemic, which is further straining an already stressed-out system and creating a medical staffing crisis. Dr. Vonnegut offers both a diagnosis and prognosis of the healthcare industry in his latest book, The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics. And he joins me now. Welcome to Under the Radar, Dr. Vonnegut. I'm glad to be here. I am taken with something that you say in your book, which seems to me to sum up in a lot of ways your perspective on the changes in medicine that you've seen in your 40 years of practicing. And that is, you say the best diagnostic tool is time. And I wonder if you would put that in context by explaining what you mean by that, but also how it really symbolizes the changes that you've seen in your 40 years of practicing. Yeah, a lot of care now uh, is you are seen by a doctor you have never seen before and you will never see again. And 40% of their time, they are clicking on a computer and it's hard to make the right diagnosis that way. I make mistakes, but my patients call me back and they know that I will stick with them no matter what. And I don't And that's how I was trained. And my um, vignettes of patients show how medical care used to be delivered and isn't anymore. So they're not just fun little stories, although they are that too. What prompted you to put this down on paper? You've written other books, but this particular one, was there a moment when you thought, it's time for me to really sum up what I've experienced and really comment on what I'm seeing now? It was more like my wife had that moment. (laughs) (laughs) And she had heard all my stories uh, and, and, and seen them and also seen how medical care has changed. And it seemed like an opportunity um, to appreciate the wonderful teachers and patients I've had and opportunities uh, and know that I'm, you know, I, I won't be practicing forever, and I'm about to turn 75. You share a lot of stories about your patients, as you've mentioned. And I wonder, is there a patient story that symbolizes what we've lost in caring for patients during your career and one that symbolizes what we've gained, if there's anything positive? What, what, which one would you pick that would just symbolize what we've lost? The first patient I took care of uh, was a girl who had advanced bone cancer. She 
showed up from Cape Verde, uh, not speaking English with a note pinned to her chest said, I have cancer, take me to Mass General. And we gave her first class treatment. And that's, that's, that doesn't happen, happen anymore. Doctors and hospitals used to be able to, when it was appropriate, give away care. And, and we sort of lost that power and ability. And, that, and that's losing a lot. You've had the advantage of, uh, and you mentioned Mass General, you know, Boston is a huge medical center that's known worldwide, not just nationally, but worldwide for the excellent care that is available here. Do you think about that actually what you've seen is way better than what much, most people in other places, even though, as we're going to hear from you, there are some issues, but for people not in a Boston area, not um, privy to be one of your patients, it's really bad. It is bad, and it's bad here for many people. We have lost 40% of our community hospitals. A lot of the rest have been gobbled up by partners, Beth Israel. They are wonderful doctors and do a great job, but the community and access to care uh, has changed for the worst. Where we have pockets here where we don't essentially have medical care, but most of rural America has lost access to care and they've lost control of community hospitals, which were something they were very proud of. Now, how, from your perspective, has the COVID pandemic exacerbated what you were seeing? We were already in big trouble and it just showed where the cracks were. And the fact that uh, we have essentially done worse than anywhere in the world. And part of that is the lack of faith in doctors and medical care in general. And part of it is the really absurd uh, polarization we have. I, I'm very naive. I real when they started talking about gay marriage, I said, well, who's going to object to that? <laughs> I honestly... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I grew up in a pretty idealistic family. And the fact that, you know, science and medicine and our mi mission uh, is, not, uh, is not accepted and supported by a country that uh, got rid of polio for nickels and dimes, the March of Dimes, a country that learned how to treat uh, cancer um, without any out-of-patient, out-of-pocket costs. Look at what we were able to do for very little money. Um, we can't do that anymore. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guest is Dr. Mark Vonnegut, whose book is The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics. We're talking about kind of downer things in this moment, but, but, but I want to point out to everybody listening that your book is actually, you know, you're you're an optimist. You're 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 uplifting. You're looking. You're recognizing the reality of the hard stuff. But overall, you're a glass half full. In fact, you're the whole glass full, <laughs> as I ascertain. And I want to give people a chance to hear your voice from the page. So, would you read the excerpt from your book, "The Heart of Caring: Reflections from a Life Lived in Medicine"? I am an optimist. 
I believe that we can and we'll get back to a better place where we take better care of patients. How we get there is to get rid of procedures, practices that hurt patients, whether they're done by doctors or hospitals or nurses or your insurance company. We took a vow to do no harm. We now have plenty of evidence that copayments, deductibles cause significant harm. In one study, there were about 50,000 veterans. There was a 34% increase in mortality attributable to copayments for prescription medications. It's not surprising that not being able to afford prescribed medications is bad for you. Most doctors and most patients, most of the time, know what they're doing, and it's unlikely that making care more expensive will improve the quality of care. Patients and doctors are already incentivized to avoid unnecessary care. Putting patients, nurses, and doctors back in charge of patient care, along with increasing the resources devoted to clinical care, will increase the value and quality of care. This is not new. It's how things used to be done and how they're done in most of the world. The same hepatitis A, B, and C HIV, tuberculosis, mental illness, and addiction currently living among the homeless population will eventually find their way into gated communities. We all are in this together. We all benefit when patients get prompt, high-quality care for COVID-19 and whatever else comes our way. Do no harm. We don't approve medications and medical devices without knowing for sure that they help patients more than they harm them. Insurers and innovations in healthcare delivery should be held to the same standards. There's no question that patients trust us less than they used to. Being trusted and being trustworthy are essential to the practice of medicine. Without trust, it's next to impossible to practice good medicine and absolutely impossible to enjoy providing it. To the extent that what we do is dominated by direct and indirect pressure to meet metrics and other nonsense that has no science behind it, why should patients trust us? Why should they take us seriously? Why wouldn't we get depressed and burnt out? Co-payments and denials of coverage work very well for payers, but very badly for patients, always. Lowering copayments, deductibles, and the cost of health insurance increases the quality and value of health care, always. When we don't pay for necessary care, we are recreating the diseases we spent the last 200 years learning how to treat effectively. Lastly, but not least, 90 plus percent of us will need health care at some point. It would be nice to have the care you need accessible and affordable. When that day comes, $2,000 ambulance rides, $10,000 ER visits, and $100,000 pills and hospitalization and million-dollar hospitalizations are not good for you or anyone else. 
Another way to look at the cost and quality problems is one of lost patient autonomy and power. Doctors and nurses are trained, highly motivated patient advocates. There are virtually zero instances where having insurers tell patients, doctors, and nurses what to do results in better or less expensive care. We could and should have guessed that having insurers rather than patients, nurses, and doctors in charge of the content of care wouldn't end well. We don't do the job perfectly, but we, doctors, nurses, and patients, do the job well enough that insurance doesn't help us do it better. We have spent thousands of years learning how to practice medicine. Not caring for ourselves or others is not, never has been, and never will be a smart way to go. It's not left, it's not right or center, it's math. The needs and interests of patients have to come first, always. And that's the end of the book. That's my guest, Dr. Mark Vonnegut, offering a reading from his book, The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics. So you're pretty clear about how you feel about the damage that you feel from your perspective in insurance and insurers have played in healthcare, period. But here we are, Dr. Vonnegut. How do what do we do? I don't I don't it seems like the horse has left the barn. I'm not certain how you get back to the patient-centered care that you were able to enjoy at the beginning of your practice. Among the only good things about COVID-19 is it showed us how to do it. For acute care of COVID-19, copayments and deductibles were dropped. This ensured more efficient care, um, better public health, and it saved patients and their families hundreds of millions of dollars. And I say, why shouldn't good care for diabetes, asthma, immunizations, why should those things that are in all of our best interests, why shouldn't those things be free to the people who need them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want you to tell the story because it's so emblematic of your practice, your knowing your community, your knowing who's in your community, and years of caring for them. I love the girl who was allergic to Christmas. That's, I just love that story. Tell it, if you will. <laughs> I, I, I take care of her children now. Oh, my goodness. Uh, which, which, is, which is a great joy. She had severe asthma, but every Christmas she would sort of deteriorate and get sicker and sicker and end up in the ICU uh, with the pneumothoraces, uh, with air leaking into the lining of her lungs and her heart. She'd be sick as a dog. And that happened every December. And we were a little thick. We should have caught on earlier. But what we found out was that her pulmonologist, myself and the ICU doctors figured out she's allergic to Christmas trees. <laughs> you know? So she's allergic to uh, Christmas and artificial trees ended her acute deterioration uh, at the end of December every year. So does she have an artificial tree now? <laughs> I, I, I hope so. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is so interesting, but that's not something you would know unless you really knew right. knew your patient. So that's uh, really interesting. I want to ask you about telemedicine because when we talk about taking the time to talk, as you've said, the best diagnostic tool is time. And again, you've just said that COVID in some ways provided an opportunity to get back to patient-centered care. So telemedicine was a substitute because, you know, people couldn't get out and do the face-to-face thing. Do you think it actually was more of a silver lining? It's not a substitute for face-to-face, but the whole essence of it is talking. Right. And who should be in charge of what situations are best handled by telephone. And it's, again, it's the patients and doctors. We used to have a call an hour. We used to have, and we'll have again, a walk-in hour where people with coughs, colds, and fevers just show up and get taken care of. With telemedicine, I was told that with certain insurances, I could take care of people who were in New Hampshire, but not Maine. Mm. I am told that I I will be paid more regardless of the problem uh, if a video component is included. I am paid by the minute. I am paid more for a 15-minute visit than a 10-minute visit. All of these things distort care. Patients and doctors are perfectly capable, and we used to provide um, telephone care for free, and it should be free. It should be part of medical care. As you make clear in your book, the building of trust between you and your patients is really fundamental to having that patient-centered care. And I wonder at this time where, again, this is COVID-related, there's so much fighting about COVID vaccines, and there's still been quite a bit of reluctance from parents. It's understandable to some degree, but, you know, this is a global pandemic. How How do you come down? How do you deal with that? How do you use that trust to get them to pay attention? I think it's one more indication uh, that we as a society don't trust science and we don't trust medicine and we see it as a system that is uh, designed to deprive sick people of money and send it up the line to CEOs. And what I do is I say, yes, you're dead right. Your insurance company, pharmaceutical industry, et cetera, are liars, brigands, and thieves, but you are still better off getting immunized than not. That works some of the time, but there are large portions of the population which has an ingrained distrust. One of the things I liked about growing up is uh, one day we were all rounded up and put in the gymnasium. Uh, There was no informed consent or anything like that. You were not getting out of that gymnasium without a polio shot. Mm. And we believed that we could cure cancer, that we could cooperate. And by and large, everybody in the 50s believed in science. Hmm. Well, that's a huge difference from right now. That's a struggle, I can tell you. You know, I think pediatricians have a built-in appeal, kind of like kindergarten teachers. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You know, like the kids uh, come to you wanting to like you until you bring out the needles. Um, (laughs) So... I I wonder if you feel that way, and you've taken the time to articulate some of the high and low points of 40 years of practicing, but what do you see as your overall legacy as a physician? Hopefully, you know, as I tell medical students, uh, best thing you can do is shut up and listen, and the patient will tell you what the diagnosis is. 
I have learned, especially with anxiety and depression, which are endemic, it didn't used to be such a problem, but in, pro- in terms of my uh, care plan, it will often include telling parents and, and right in front of the kid, I say, you have to stop bugging him. Hmm. <laughs> and the, the kids are just are, are shocked that the doctor's on their side. I wear exciting, fancy socks, and I've learned to go into a room and say, how can I be of service and mean it? And that's the great joy of being my own boss. I have oppositional defiant disorder, and I don't do well with people telling me what to do. Dr. Vonica, you have written a couple of books really detailing your own personal experience with mental health. And as a pediatrician in COVID times, you are looking at the damage being done to children in this arena. How do you see it? And how do you, more importantly, how do you see us getting out of it for these children? How can they be helped? Because this is ongoing now, and we don't even know all the ways in which they have been affected. Right. And we also don't know what the effect of us having social media. Uh, there are many things that we don't know the end effects uh, of are going to be. Um, I think there's a lot we can do um, for depression and anxiety. And very few of my kids, but not zero, uh, need inpatient facilities. We don't have the resources. We don't have the psychiatrist. When somebody cut themselves or uh, whatever, uh, 40 years ago, I called up the head of psychiatry and he saw the patient within a week and we had a plan. Now to get to see a psychiatrist at MGH or Children's or Tufts, which losing Tufts is a real loss. Um, we should say that they're closing down their, their children's practice. Go ahead. Yeah. So it's nine months to to see a psychiatrist sometimes. And I sometimes say uh, my patient doesn't want to kill themselves in nine months. They're worried about it now. Um, and the lack of facilities means that our emergency rooms are clogged up with kids who are in crisis whose parents can't handle it. I had a like a 10-year-old autistic 200-pound very strong boy with a not-so-strong thin mother, and she had to go to an emergency room because he was unmanageable. He stayed in that emergency room without seeing a psychiatrist for six days. That's not acceptable. Do you think that COVID has, on the flip side, made it more understandable to a broader population, even those not presumably affected by mental health issues, that this is an issue and that we need to pay more attention to it and we need to have the services as you've described? I think we do. And I do think parents have known this for a long time. I think the public has done a great job of getting rid of some of the the stigma and knows that we need these services. The worst people involved in stigma and stuff are still and will probably always be doctors. Mm, Okay. So you've laid out a plan that would work if we could get a hold of the insurance companies and sort of peel back some of their encroaching role in making decisions that are from folks who are not doctors or even anywhere in the medical field. What do you want your readers to take away as an action plan based on 
you're raising the alarm about how, what health care has turned into at this point. You said what you're going to do. You're raging against the night. You're making it clear that we, we can't wait for some of these things. But what should readers take from your story? To make stronger and make more effective the natural alliance between uh, patients and nurses and doctors. Because at this point, patients see doctors as part of the problem. And the, the insurance companies, to be fair, um, were told in 1973 that they could and should be run as for-profit enterprises. So when a 20, $20 million executive is telling me what to do and to do fewer x-rays or whatever, they're doing their job. They are making money and that's their job but they should not be in charge of the content of medical care. Well, you can't say that you haven't uh, raised the alarm and told the story of of what it looks like when there is patient-centered care. And I love your question that you ask, how can you be a doctor and not care too much? That's comforting for me to hear, and I'm certain for my listeners as well. And I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Dr. Mark Vonnegut is a Boston-based pediatrician and author of the book, The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Vanessa Handy is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.